Hi friends, how are you? Gabby here from My Possible Self. So, you know, on the last episode, episode 28, I said it would be the final episode of season one. Well, I lied. (laughs) We have three more episodes coming your way. Let me explain. Full disclosure, we did plan to wrap up season one a few weeks ago, but... When the team and I started to think about how to approach season two, we decided rather than steaming ahead, we wanted to ask our quarter of a million app users, that's you lovely lots, what would you like to hear more of? And so while the feedback is being gathered, we decided to drop three bonus episodes to tide you over, all based on the overarching theme of bullying. Now, bullying isn't a mental health illness, but... Being on the receiving end is often detrimental to a person's mental health and can have extremely serious consequences. And it's such a huge area to try and navigate our way through to some kind of better understanding. We decided one episode wouldn't cut it. So we are doing an episode a week uh, for the next three weeks, kicking off today with cyberbullying. Then we're going to do bullying in the workplace and youth bullying. That's from small kids to Gen Zers. So kicking off the trilogy today, we are zooming in on online bullying. That's any kind of abusive behavior that takes place online. And we have an incredible guest to help us get to grips with this mammoth issue. Alex Holmes is a leading anti-bullying campaigner. He's founder of the Anti-Bullying Ambassadors and deputy CEO of the Diana Award. Alex is also a trust and safety advisor to Twitch, TikTok, Twitter, Yubo, Instagram, and even the Home Office. He's also on the Bernardo's and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation advisory board. So I think you'll agree there is no better person to help us get to grips with this subject. So let's meet Alex and proceed with today's episode. Welcome, Alex Holmes, to the My Possible Self podcast. Could we start by learning a little bit about you? Yeah, well, really good to to be with you uh, today, Gabby. And um, yeah, I think this is a big, big topic and an important one, particularly for children, but I I think also for um, adults, as we know that in that sense, um, online bullying doesn't really discriminate. Um, It can affect a a wide variety of people. So my name's Alex, and I'm Deputy CEO at the Diana Award. It's a legacy to Princess Diana's belief that young people have the power to change the world. And my sort of journey with the Diana Award is um, when I was growing up, I was on the receiving end of some bullying and uh, started a programme to try and uh, stand up uh, against that and help my peers uh, stand up against it. And uh, for that, I received the Diana Award uh, when I was sort of age 16. And um, then maybe uh, about 10 years ago, uh, teamed up with the Diana Award to bring that program to the charity. Um, and we do a lot of programs at charity, which I think really in a nutshell, maybe are all about empowering young people um, so they can protect themselves from harmful behaviours, but also so they can develop the skills to make a real difference to their school and their community and hopefully their workplaces and the world around them. You also do work with the UK Home Office, I read. What does that mm-hmm. entail? Yeah, so along the way, I've um, developed some great partnerships and currently work with a lot of the tech companies. So I sit on quite a few of the uh, 
uh, big platforms like uh, Twitch and TikTok uh, as on their advisory board, but also work with government. So the program at the charity is funded by the Department of Education and um, also um, on a sort of home office task force, which is looking at in particular online sexual abuse and exploitation. And yeah, also quite involved with the uh, online harms bill, which is going through through parliament at the moment, which is a bill that's going to try and make uh, the internet a safer place, regulate some of the companies. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the space, a lot of, a lot of exciting stuff Definitely. and hopefully sort of progress. You've also been made a Queen's Young Leader by Her Majesty the Queen at Buckingham Palace. So that role sees you representing the Commonwealth. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of a big deal. So before we get into the sort of bullying online culture and start discussing about cyberbullying, going back, you, you touched upon um, your, I suppose, journey into this space started mm -hmm. from your own personal experience of being bullied. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I was at primary school, uh, I was on the receiving end of some racist bullying and a uh, majority of that was sort of nasty verbal bullying, racist bullying. Uh, my dad's black, his family's from Jamaica. And then my mum's side is from Spain, a bit more distant. And some of the kids in my class didn't really understand that difference. And um, it, it would be sort of racist language about my dad, about where my family's from. That was quite difficult to deal with at sort of young age and I can remember being quite upset I think and while well, I was in tears quite a lot at primary school because of that and then when I went to secondary school it sort of continued but it was it was made a bit more complex because it was also some um, homophobic bullying sort of about my perceived sexuality but also layered with some racist um abuse on top so I think it, it it was particularly difficult and when you when you realize that you sort of as a child you spend 11,000 hours of your life at, at school even for just one of those hours constantly to sort of be made uh to, to, to well making you feel sort of upset unsafe or uncomfortable can really it can really stop you from reaching your potential from putting your hand up in class from being yourself um, from filling, yeah, what what you what you want to, to to do really. So it really affected my self esteem and confidence, and I think that's that sort of pain really gave me a real passion and purpose to try and mm. think about making a difference when I felt confident enough. Yeah. So research has shown a person will be like highly likely to be mentally disadvantaged in later life if bullied at school. Did it affect your mental health? I, I feel like, um, like you said, you've turned sort of this around, but many people don't. Yeah, I think there's a big link between um, bullying and, and mental health. And then um, you're right, kind of one study that sticks in my mind with, with, with that is one that King's Cross did when um, they, they tracked, I think it was 10 and 11 year olds that were exposed to bullying. Uh, right up to the age of 50 and those 50 year olds had poor mental health, poor job prospects or even lacked the ability to trust adults in the workplace all because of that experience of um, being bullied at school. I think for me it did affect my mental health. Um, I don't think we were so good back then at calling it mental health or you know understanding the relationship between um, 
you know, experiences, harmful experiences, mental health, but it, it, it definitely did affect mine. And uh, I think it's stopped me from at times being so social, um, you know, affecting my sleep, um, my well-being, my attainment at school and my relationships at home, actually, with, with my mum and my friends. I think it can can really make you feel um, quite depressed and, and that can mean you are a little bit sort of moody or um, maybe even aggressive with your friends or family. So, yeah, it, it had a big impact, I think, on my on my um, time at school and my mental health and well-being. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. When it's kids picking on kids, do you think the bullies realise the extent of what they're doing? No, I think you're right. I think I think I mean I think that's one of the reasons why I'm, I don't sort of hold anything against the people that did that to me at school because we were both children and well we were all children and I think they didn't understand the impact. I think they thought it was just words, um, and they, they didn't. You know, to be fair, I don't think my school did enough to educate pupils about that. I'd like to think that's different now because mm, because of you. There's much. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. hopefully yeah hopefully because of, because of um the program that i've introduced into a lot of schools but hopefully also yeah. just because the curriculum's got slightly better things like uh, phse lessons and computing curriculum uh covers bullying online safety and so on but um yeah i don't i don't think they, at the time i don't think they realized what they were doing or the impact it was having on me or others mm. well let's you touched upon the, the program that you founded it's a peer support program, Anti-Bullying Ambassadors. This program is now in over 4,000 schools across the UK, Ireland, Greece and Miami. Uh, can mm. you talk about this from the conception to the present? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think it all sort of came about when I was age 16 and I was um, just finished my GCSEs, joined the sixth form. And um, I sort of found my voice, really. I became very confident, partly because a lot of the people that had been bullying me, chose not to stay on. And it felt a little bit more of a safer environment. Um, but I was quite brave and bold. I just gave myself a, a job. So I called myself um, Student Anti-Bullying Coordinator. And my head teacher was a little bit concerned where this role came from that he didn't interview <laughs> for. But I built a case really, I kind of had a convinced case. I, I sent questionnaires and surveys out to every form group to build up a sort of good picture of what was going on. And there was some quite shocking sort of cases of sustained uh, bullying going on and violence really. Um, and that made me think, well, you know, what, what needs to change? Well, to me, there was uh, a culture of it being acceptable. Nobody really sort of stood up for me or others. They didn't feel confident. Then there was a clear message that bullying wasn't okay. So um, I felt, that in order to change things, it was going to be um, important that it wasn't just a teacher we were hearing from once a year about bullying or wasn't just parents reinforcing that message. It also needed to be students. So peer-to-peer -peer seemed really powerful. And I think when you think about it, peers have their own sort of language. That when they speak to each other, it, it doesn't have that authority tone that parents or adults has or teachers. Um, so it felt like a really sort of powerful way and uh, I created a team, sort of um, army of anti-bullying ambassadors. And was, I was very conscious to not just find people that had been bullied at school like me, because I think that's not going to be the best solution. And instead, I was looking for people that had maybe experienced bullying, but also people that um, had witnessed it 
or even some people that in the past had been engaged in bullying, but perhaps have learned a little bit about that. Um, so we created this team. They sort of became many celebrities in the, in the school and, and well-known, presented assemblies, did patrols, sort of friendly patrols. We had conversations with students, drop-in sessions so that other students could come speak if they were being bullied. But then also big sort of uh, fun days and events and things like smile on compliment days and at my secondary school we would um get a, get an ice cream van in for for a smile on compliment day and um have a big board where you could pin the best compliment that you've received or given and we'd set everyone a challenge of giving 10 compliments a day and form tutors supported that and then on smile days the best smile was recognized and just simple stuff that really i think that hopefully shaped attitudes and cultures and and sent that clear message um but yeah the idea of being an anti-bullying ambassador is really um learning how to stand up for yourself and others and um stamping out all harmful sort of uh types of bullying uh, from racist homophobic um and, and and so on and um i think it made a, a big difference and it worked partly because it was students leading it and making it unacceptable and making it cool mm, that's amazing I want to kind of segue now into cyberbullying because, and this is something that you said, with cyberbullying, we found that it starts at school in the playgrounds, then becomes a digital thing. So it starts offline and then goes, you know, online, which is no surprise mm. in the world that we live in, especially now that, the you know, the even with the pandemic, kids were on their devices a lot more because... That's all they had to do, even with at school and, and out of school. Um, but first of all, what is cyberbullying? How would you define it? Yeah, I think that's um, yeah, great, great question. Um, and actually something that we're working on at the moment is um, quite a few sort of young people have told us that the word cyber is a bit sort of old fashioned. And, <laughs> and I think I, I definitely appreciate that. But yeah, I think we, we would we would say that cyberbullying or online bullying is in any sort of form of bullying that's carried out through the use of um, electronic devices so it could be your computer it could be laptop smartphone uh, tablet of course gaming consoles as well um, and I think it is about again we always say it's got to be intentional it's not a mistake really and that it's um, more, more, has to happen more than once um, and and it's in, it's making someone feel perhaps uh, upset and safe or uncomfortable and I think I think that that more than one thing is really important because I think we're always going to come across in schools and society and online unkindness and um, you know if that is if that is a one-off then hopefully we've got the resilience or the sort of inner strength to um, brush that off or, or think well maybe that person's having a bad day or we'll deal with it and I think it's important that we don't label everything as sort of bullying um so we do think it has to be um occurring more than once has to be repetitive yeah yeah we are we are quick to label aren't we so what are the some of the most widespread common types of cyberbullying that you've seen within your work yeah um so i think i think one of the biggest things that i think particularly sort of young people are telling us is, is quite common um when it comes to cyberbullying um is the sort of harassment and so this could be constantly leaving comments um or sending messages or um sort of yeah nasty nasty comments or or, or um 
DMs. Uh, I think a lot of people say that's quite common for them. I think the other thing is the sort of denigration or accusations. So one of the things about the internet is they public and it can be things can spread very quickly it was if you think about an incident that happens in school it's perhaps more controlled there's probably a few people that um, are witness to it but for a lot of young people they're on the receiving end of this sort of reputational gossip or rumors that demean them and target them i think those can spread quite quickly on, on social media the other thing i would say is a lot of young people are affected by sort of impersonations so it could be again fake accounts that um, are again spreading information about them, but that seems to be um, quite quite common. Um, and I suppose lastly, I would say if you, what we know about online bullying is that if you have uh, protected characteristics, and um, perhaps it, that's your religion or your um, race or your gender, because um, we know that women and people of colour, those sort of groups are often more disproportionately affected by online bullying and targeted, you know, which is why we always have to make sure we really consider that um, and, and hear those voices because um, we, we know that unfortunately it has a real impact on, on women and girls and people perhaps who are non-binary actually and, and people of colour. So I think it can adversely affect those communities and then have an even bigger impact on, on their mental health. Sitting across these boards like TikTok and Twitter and YouTube and all the various, you know, I mean, you don't get bigger. It must be so difficult to, like, safeguard, you know, users when you're talking about, like, what, billions of users around the world? Like, I mean, how, especially when it's comments, like, and I'd imagine there's keywords that would bring up red flags immediately, but, like, I suppose the sneaky ones would get more creative with their use of words and that could easily slip through the net right yeah i think i think you're right there um and and i think we are talking about a lot of these platforms have well bill billions of users right if you think of tiktok and and instagram and, and and so on and i think it is it is really difficult and there actually there was this great study um by the anti-defamation uh, league and i think they were looking at sort of um, policy and moderation and they said that if the platform uh, for example like like TikTok which has a billion users um, or I think it has more than that actually if, if each of them posted once a day and even if that platform enforced the policies accurately 99% of the time that would still leave 10 million errors on, on, on the platform every day so even so, you know, it's important to remember that each of those 10 million errors, they're not just a statistic, they're, they're, they represent sort of lived experience, real humans that maybe are being exposed to threats or violence or misinformation. But I think that just goes to show the scale really of what we're, what we're dealing with and that also this is humans choosing to um, behave that way. And I think it's complex behavior, um, attitude. I, I, I heard a lot during the pandemic so sort of around things like the the World Cup racism that was um, subjected to a lot of England players um, in, in the Euro 2020 final. I heard a lot about sort of, well, if the platforms are able to sort of put a label on COVID misinformation, why can't they do the same with racism? But I think it's not that simple because for, an, if, if for a subject like health, which is, um, you know, pretty, it's, it's not so, 
you know, so subjective and it's pretty clear cut, I think you can present information. But for something like racism, if I was using a racist word, well, I might be using it as um, a victim with lived experience to raise awareness, or um, there might be some some um, sort of communities that are using it um, in, a, in a different way, in an empowering way. Um, and I think it's, you can't just sort of apply a label or moderation to it. And what we also know about sitting on um, Twitter's Trust and Safety Global Council is that um, for the majority of the abuse, um, I think 99% of the accounts um, that were sending that racist abuse were not anonymous. There's often this sort of perception that it's all anonymous people or we need to verify users because it's anonymous. And then by far the biggest amount of the abuse, the racist abuse was actually coming from UK accounts which suggests to me that we have a problem with racism, not just online, but also in society. For Twitter, the worst yeah. around the world for yeah. racist so, abuse is England. Yeah. Well, for the, for the Euro 2020, so... For the Euro 2020, the, right, right. Yeah, for the, for the, for the players, that um, those three players, England players that were receiving racist abuse, 99% uh, of the accounts weren't anonymous. Um, so I don't think verifying users or identity would necessarily help with that and then yeah the most the majority of the abuse came from uk accounts um which i think just shows it's not just an online issue it must be in society thinking about like um yeah, i mean we're all content creators now right we all upload things and then you have the ability to comment on people's content and that's i'm sure a gray area because uh i've seen and most people have seen comments that are just really not pleasant Mm -hmm. But is it something we just have to sort of accept because we've chosen to share that content and put it out there? Yeah, I think this is a great question. Um, and I think it's also changing um, sort of data in, in a big sense because uh, we talked earlier about um, sort of thinking about cyberbullying and, and, and for children, I think a lot of it, even when the, when it's when they experience online bullying, I think it's like most of it for children starts offline, at school by a peer familiar relationship. For adults, to say different, but for all of us now becoming content creators and putting ourselves out there, I think you are more likely to receive abuse from strangers and not your network or opinion people you know. There's a big debate around maybe the difference between what is offensive and, and what is harmful, and you know, do people have the right to offend? Probably, people think the norm. So the norm is, um, but people probably don't um, think that um, you know you should be allowed to harm harm someone. But yeah. I think it, it's quite difficult to 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 judge that. Yeah. Um, I think we do want to hold on to sort of freedom of speech and not moderating yeah. everything. You look at the definition. If you're going out of your way to uh, constantly be malicious and harass um, or abuse someone, then I think that is probably the difference. But if you are putting yourself out there and um, you're inviting opinions and those opinions may be a bit offensive, but they don't cross the line to be to be harmful or whatever that definition might be, um, I, I think we are going to have to be a little bit resilient and have that strength or use the tools on some of the platforms. So, you know, most of the platforms have options to block keywords from appearing in your comments or in your DMs or on photos. And I think that's a really helpful tool. 
but yeah, I think we're going to have to continue to navigate that and understand the relationship that we sort of have with our followers, with the internet space, um, and, and putting yourself out there and what that could mean for your for your mental health and, and your well-being on those platforms. I wonder as well about the mental health of the people that are actually writing this offensive, yeah. you know, comments, because I, I think it's very cowardly behaviour, isn't it? But it's also, it must come from a place of people that are very unhappy to be going after people, especially if they don't know them. I mean, if you're in the public eye, unfortunately, that does sort of come part and parcel with the gig, doesn't it, these days? And, mm. and you know what you're signing up for. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right, but if it's just you know people that aren't in the public eye and that are just trying to lead, lead their lives that's when um mm. it can be definitely de detrimental to to their mental health yeah, as well sure. so what is the fair play alliance because just in the gaming community is there a lot of cyberbullying that happens there or is it more like bravado or a bit of both mm, yeah yeah and i think the gaming often gets sort of overlooked and you know, we often sort of hear headlines or stories about how bad social media um, sort of apps are and platforms. But, you know, gaming, I think, is um, particularly, as you mentioned earlier, with, with the pandemic, it saw numbers sort of really shot up in terms of um, how many people are streaming or playing games. And I think that gaming has a few sort of interesting elements, like, yeah, to your point, maybe the sort of gaming uh, aspect and maybe that community aspect is quite, quite strong there. And on some platforms like Twitch, you if you're a streamer, you can appoint members of your followers as moderators to help moderate the chat and oh, that's a good uh, idea. Build, yeah, build a sense of sort of community and, and make sure that people feel safe and happy. So I think those things are really helpful. But what we do know, unfortunately, is that there are a sort of lot of toxic attitudes in gaming, like racist, sexist. Um, and I think that idea of having a headset and you know if you're just a group of friends and you're gaming you you can hear some quite um toxic language and uh, be exposed to that i think there are still some challenges there and and also with live streaming or that sort of audio elements on gaming um moderation isn't quite there for technology yet it's, it's really hard to moderate um audio or even live streams really I think I would say the platforms are quite good to identify things like nudity or you know machine learning or or um sort of AI sort of stuff, but other stuff is much harder and even audio is is really difficult. And I think sometimes people think well technology should just be able to solve some of these issues, but again it's like really complex and it's hard to tell. I think it's hard for a machine or artificial intelligence to tell sort of context of humor or you know what is intentional so uh there's still some real challenges i think on, on the gaming and the fair play alliance is is a group of some of the biggest gaming companies who are coming together um to try and make a difference to safety and i, and I would say most of the time these big companies while there's lots of competition between the sort of product innovation the things like safety they do share a lot of the sort of breakthrough technology and they try and you know they try not to make that a competitive uh, aspect safety and they'll try and um, help make progress together on on those aspects in terms of um cyberbullying 
there's when it's come from somebody you know and then when it's somebody you don't know as well so there's the sort of the two aspects when we see unpleasant comments should we report it and i actually think it's probably more of a gray area when it's somebody you do know yeah no absolutely and i think a lot of schools have this campaign uh, that we help sort of spread called uh, reporting is supporting so this idea if you see something that um, you don't think is right or doesn't make you feel safe or others, then reporting actually helps build a safer community, whether that's in school or online. And I think it is important that if you do see something, you use the tools that are there. Quite often, actually, with young people, when they say, you know, they sort of say other companies don't, don't do anything. And I ask if, with their permission, can I have a look at their phone? Um, because all of your reports, um, when, when you report something, most of the platforms are stored in like a support dashboard sort of thing, a report dashboard. Um, and a lot of the time, actually, young people haven't really, well, haven't reported it. Like they haven't gone through that process. And I think it is really important because every single report is read most of the time by human um, and it's anonymous. So it's completely confidential. No one knows you reported. Um, and it does really make a difference. I think if you um see a friend who's on the receiving end of online abuse then you might want to do two things you might want to first of all check in with them and let them know i can see what's happening to you it's not okay if you want to talk i'm here for you i think that makes a big difference but also maybe check if they know how to report um you know, put in a report on their behalf as well um often it is stronger for the person if it's happening to you to make that report um because social media companies you know, often will prioritise those that those reports that are targeting you. Um, so I think I think it is important to, to do that. Every single platform has the reporting function. They have big moderation teams that read those reports and and do make uh, actually take actions on those. And for most of the platforms, as I say, when you report something, you get a notification that it's been received, that it's been read and decision. And on some of the more sophisticated platforms, you can score the response. And if you score it really low, sort of sad face, then sometimes the companies will go back and review it. But I think it's important to do that. Um, and there's even a great website for the UK called reportharmfulcontent.com. And they work directly with social media companies, companies that when you've tried reporting, it's not working. They take up your sort of case and it's a charity. Um, so I, th I think it is important to do that. They say things, you know, you can might also, if it's particularly serious, want to screenshot, keep evidence. And the police also, if, if it was really threatening or if it was racist or um, particularly um, sort of malicious, you could go to the police and they could help you um, deal with that sort of sort of abuse. So, yeah, I think reporting is really, really important. Mm. I think about connection with anything online and um, I'm actually curious if you've worked with any like dating apps as well within um, everything that you do, because I guess what I'm sort of leading up to is like what are some of the warning signs that we might be speaking to somebody who is going to be trouble because mm. especially again through the pandemic like people have wanted to make new friends and online has been the only option for many months so yeah have you worked with dating apps mm. and does bullying in the dating world online does that happen and uh yeah what are your thoughts there 
Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's a good question. But I'm I'm gonna after this try and try and do some work with them because it does it does <laughs> it just made me think about that. Um, I think yeah, that's a really important point. And um, I suppose you could call them sort of red flags, really, and things you know things that sort of make you um, a little bit concerned. I think some of those principles you should apply are things like if something or someone sounds too good to be true, then maybe it is, and sort of questioning. Although it's not always clear car finding sort of people's um social media and seeing you know that they um they are on other platforms, not just dating apps, and that they have you know network and they have friends is helpful sometimes to sort of sort of validate that. But I, I think you really do have to sort of trust your instincts and and think about how do you protect yourself? How do you make sure you're not putting yourself in a vulnerable situation, not feel pressured to sort of share contact information and you know share your whatsapp really quickly or move on to that because i think when compared to maybe when you you and i growing up like it it took a lot longer to get to know someone because you you know you didn't have snapchat and it wasn't so quick to sort of yeah um, there there was no tinder swindler (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. i think it can feel very intimate and um sort of quick nowadays forming relationships but mm. i think you, you still have to be safe really and, and remember that people can tell you things to make you feel like they're a great person um yeah because they're not going to start off nasty a lot if they're like luring mm. you in or they as a friend yeah. if it's in, you're gaming with them or if you're it's on a dating app whatever the circumstances yeah. they might start off nice i think and then mm. you kind of think you've built some sort of relationship with them whether it's yeah. like friendship or romantic yeah. and, and then that's where that things can turn nasty i i think you're right there and from doing a facetime you're never going to understand or see someone's mental health or their past behavior, you know, you're not going to get that. So you do have to be cautious, I think. And I, I think it also comes down to understanding what what does a good friend or relationship look like for, for you and what are, you know, even to the extent of what people who you're connected to are sharing, like does the stuff that they share make you feel happy or actually does it just make you feel really jealous and annoyed maybe you don't need to see some of that because i think we often live in this sort of fear of missing out uh, age or this um everyone just celebrates all the positives and actually if you are consuming some of that and you think well it just makes me feel like i'm not doing very well in life then maybe you don't need that connection because what Absolutely. it's not helping you getting in the way mm-hmm. um and i think sometimes that with mental health like we're very quick to sort of put the blame on technology and sort of say well it's increasing poor mental health but I think we've got to remember that there was still a big issue with mental health before technology uh, and before some of these big platforms were around and I think we always like to compare ourselves you know whether that was going to school on a non-school uniform day and who had the best trainers Mm -hmm. what technology's done is maybe makes it much more to the surface but I, I think if you're mental health is already not great or you're finding things that are difficult if you go on social media it's only going to exacerbate it and and perhaps make it worse so i think we have to really think about when you're worried about your mental health what are perhaps the things that are creating that poor mental health and it might be technology increased use of it but it also might be 
lack of sleep or your diet or friendships or things going on in, in your life. So I think it's really important that we um, don't sort of just blame technology. And it does annoy me a little bit when politicians in particular sort of say, you know, social media is, is causing the mental health because I think that excuses their lack of funding into mental health provision and support. And I think when the media do it as well, you know, they're fascinated with these stories of um, young people being affected by cyberbullying. But when, when I remind them that I've got far more stories of what's going on in our schools, because it, it's about 90% of young people have experienced online bullying, but nearly 50% have experienced face-to-face bullying and school bullying um they're not so interested because the media kind of want to regulate social media because it eats into their advertising right. revenues and they think it's not fair they have to abide to more sort of standards I, I do worry sometimes that we've kind of built this perception of the internet being a really sort of scary place and and yeah there are some flaws with it and problems but i think there's also a lot of flaws offline in our schools in society and i think we need to be doing we need to be targeting both of those things and trying to make both of those spaces better i think there's a bit of an imbalance at the moment but yeah. um yeah it's, it, it's sort of fascinating in, in that sense that how we present the risks of of mm. social media uh, and perhaps forget about some of the opportunities and the positives i saw i think it was on your socials you posted about the online safety bill was it updated recently yeah so it's um been a long long time the online safety harm bill uh, has been going through parliament for a while it's sort of been draft stage um it's had sort of five secretary of states um sort of look at it and now it's in front of parliament so and really these are some laws that are going to try and um, make the internet a safer place for people in the uk uh, regulate in some in some space some places and in some cases force the companies to do more and to prevent sort of some content from being on their platforms and um, it will be overseen by Ofcom which currently regulate things like TV and, and other media it's going to be a big big thing I, th- I think it's a you know, huge challenge um, as we talked about with the scale but um, in theory, uh, it's going to make sure that citizens in the UK are safer and that companies are doing more. I'm not, yeah, and I also don't like the idea of companies holding on to our data, knowing who we are, like, because we we see data breaches all the time and mm. also mm. imagine oh, some All the time. Yeah. All the time. And, and it's like, because <laughs> I did a, like, a, a sort of online qualification in, like, oh, digital yeah. marketing. And I, and I, so I know it's, they're not supposed to, if you opt out of the email subscriptions, you're not supposed to be bombarded. And yet, happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Or, like, yeah. text messages. And I'm like, how, I didn't give my phone number out. How <laughs> true, have they got it? And that, oh, and don't get me started, about... Alex. Don't get me started. <laughs> I think that's the thing about, <laughs> Like, can we really trust um, companies or governments with the data? And and you know, maybe the UK government, you know, I don't know, they wouldn't they wouldn't request that data from the companies. But you can imagine some other countries and regimes across the globe, you know, might say to the companies, "You need to give us all that data," and then they can know which citizens, you know, what citizens are saying. And you know, I think that could be particularly problematic. So. Yeah, there's some real challenges with this bill, um, but at the heart of it is a real sort of ambition to try and make the internet a safer place. And to be fair, I think 
you know, it's been a long time coming and there's not those same rules that exist in society. Although I would say that in theory, our current law does state that, you know, things that are not acceptable um, offline are also not acceptable online. So, you know, there's the Malicious Communications Act and that may be when, when, when my parents moved to um, Milton Keynes and they were a mixed race couple, um, my mum and dad, uh, as a, a sort of new couple, got things like hate mail, racist hate, anonymous hate mail in the post. And the Malicious Communications Act covered that. And, and it would cover now racist uh, online abuse and so on. But um, I think what the law hasn't done is sort of caught up with technology. Um, but yeah. this bill, you know, is this bill going to be fit for the next stage, which is like virtual reality and where... Wow. 3.0 and nfts and that real you know immersive i don't know i don't know because we don't know some challenges that are going to be there um yeah. so it's, it's interesting will it be fit for purpose well i hope so yeah i hope so too you believe the best course of action is to report but not to retaliate so mm. i want to ask you why um, mm-hmm. and also do people get held accountable really because I think that's also maybe why not enough reporting maybe happens because you mm-hmm. think nobody's going to do anything about it. I use myself yeah. as an example. I was selling some things on Facebook Marketplace when I was moving. Uh, this was when I was in the States and somebody was asking me about, I don't know, a set of drawers or whatever it was. And I just because I was working, didn't get back to them immediately and just boom, they turned and said some really, I mean, I won't repeat it here. And I was going to report it and I started to look on Facebook to do that, but I couldn't actually, it was a bit, I couldn't get to where I needed to get to very easily. So I just Mm, left it, but they didn't just message me once. They messaged me until I blocked them and I didn't take it further because I thought, well, are they going to get held accountable? Probably not. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question about, um, yeah, like holding people to uh, accountable it kind of comes down to like when when someone treats you wrongly you don't want to kind of stoop to their level and use you know use the same harmful you know upsetting uh content that they sent towards you are you giving them what they probably want by giving them a reaction yeah yeah i think part of that as well um and I think, you know, in the, in, the, in the offline world, you can't sort of solve, if you're at work or if you're at school and you, you know, you reacted in the same way someone treated you, well, you, you might get in trouble and, you know, by your teachers or by your employer. And I think you, you're not the one that deserves to be in trouble. So it's kind of like you don't want to stoop to their level. And that if anyone should receive a punishment, it should be them. I think companies are getting better at, at trying to put, consequences in place and that whether that's sort of timeouts or whether that is warnings or some platforms are much better at being able to block repeat abusers but I think it is it is quite hard actually that sort of part because because it's anonymous confidential you don't always know the outcome and you don't know what they've been told and what sort of strikes they're on and platforms are also really nervous about publishing the sort of rule book because there are some very smart um, bad actors that are able to sort of game it. If if you if you tell them exactly like where the line's drawn or what how many times or chances they've got, some people can be quite smart with being like, okay, I can just go up to this point each time and know 
nothing's going to happen to me. Um, so I think wow. it's difficult there. I think for serious things, the, there are some good examples of sort of when you think about some racist abuse, uh, some of the players, football players have experienced, there's been some high profile cases where those people are now in court um, or straight away when their employers have sort of dismissed them. I think it also plays into what is the best uh, course of action. And I think sometimes sort of restorative and reflection, like knowing, knowing that we all make mistakes and maybe that person's having a bad day or their mental health's not great. I think you mentioned earlier, mm. perhaps there's better help we can get them or I'd love to see platforms provide. So, you know, in the same sense that when you perhaps, if you ever were speeding, you'd go on like a speeding awareness course, like actually, mm. you know, it'd be great to make them reflect on their behavior and understand more about what they did and the impact it had on someone. Um, because I'm not a huge fan of, in most cases, sort of cancel culture, because I, you know, I think we, we all make, make mistakes and it's about giving, as long as we're constantly making those mistakes, it's, you should have the chance to change your behaviors. Because I think somebody that maybe, you see this with influencers or um, sort of up and coming, emerging talent, and then the media sort of find a tweet that they sent when they were age 16 or, you know, even three years ago yeah. I think as long as that person isn't still doing that behavior then maybe that's okay that they learn and that growth you know is, is really important and I think none of us maybe hold the same views that we did you know five years ago because we've learned more about ourselves and the world yeah. around us so so it's a fine balance really isn't it? well I was going to ask you actually have you seen an online bully find redemption and reform or maybe it's just a bully in general like can a bully changes spots yeah but i think i think definitely i always remember some more of the extreme cases where in the early days sort of online trolls sky news would sort of go after them and door knock them and i think behind that door and you know behind the screen uh is often quite a vulnerable person who um is going through challenges themselves that sort of public humiliation is just as bad as what they were giving really i think all of us are capable right of changing our behavior I think that's the great thing about um humans and we do evolve and we we do we, you know we, we do change and our attitudes grow the online uh person doing online bullying um isn't really a bullying their behavior is bullying but it doesn't define them and i think all of us should have the right to sort of grow and as long as we're not constantly making those same, same mistakes i think we and um, yeah we do see a lot of the time people change and understand you know maybe social media is also guilty of if you are able to choose your feed and just follow certain information you know there is a bit of an echo sort of chamber yeah. you know silos and you need to be challenged by people that are not just thinking the same as you and and therefore i think education is really really important and that sort of reflective and compassion I suppose uh, compassion because that's what we'd like to see those people demonstrating the behavior have more of compassion so maybe we could have first and foremost some compassion to them but I think it's really hard if someone is stalking you or harassing you or, or making you feel really upset and safe and comfortable then you have every right to feel the way you do um, yeah, but we yeah. never know what's going on behind that sort of bullying behavior I suppose absolutely to wrap things up, hmm. what support is out there, Alex, for somebody that is getting cyberbullied? Yeah, I think I think one of the really important things is to think about who 
is in your support network on your side. So this could be people already in your life, on your on friendship group. Maybe it's a colleague that you know you have a great chat with, or maybe it's a relative. I think often um, speaking to them about what's going on and again their sort of insight is is really valuable um, and i really encourage people to think about who's in their support network but if that's troubling then there's some great mental health sort of um tech support like one of them is shouts where you know, it's free it's confidential and you know there's lots of apps lots of uh, helplines as well i'm a really big fan of uh, reportharmfulcontent.com um, which is this charity which works with all the social media companies and that if you are facing any type of harmful content online and you've tried reporting it's not working they will help you and take up your case um, so I think that's really really valuable but in some more serious cases don't be afraid to go to the police because they should have the training there are laws in place that can help you deal with this uh, I think the worst thing to do is suffer in silence uh, and I definitely recommend trying reporting first um, because that's what that's what it's there for and those would be my sort of big sort of top tips brilliant thank you very much for today i really appreciate it no thank you well thanks 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 Amy. i think it's really important um discussion and, and uh, i think the podcast series is great so thank you yeah thanks thanks for for, for doing this and, and shining a light on, on, on some of the issues Thanks again to Alex Holmes for a really interesting conversation all about online bullying. And if you or somebody you know has been affected by cyber abuse of any way, shape or form, please do seek help and please do report it. And that, my friends, concludes the first of three episodes on bullying for my possible self I, Gabby, will be back next week talking to Julie Dennis, who is Head of Diversity and Inclusion at ACAS, which is the Workplace Expert for England, Wales and Scotland. ACAS gives employees and employers free impartial advice on workplace rights, rules and best practices. So next week on the pod, we will be covering workplace bullying. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you don't already follow My Possible Self on social media, we are at My Possible Self on Twitter and Instagram. And I've been at Radio Gabby. Until the next one, do take care and bye for now.